0: Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular culture podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. We took last week off. Laurel and I did a baby moon. I don't know if you uh, know what that is, listeners, but that is when you take a little trip before you have a baby, sort of as like your last getaway. And obviously, because of COVID, we didn't have a ton of options. So we ended up renting a little cottage via Airbnb in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was October. The weather was cool. The leaves had changed. It was very beautiful, but also very spooky. And we toured the battle site of the famous Battle of Gettysburg from the American Civil War. And we are back, and this absolutely made us think more about our Halloween October-themed slate of episodes. I hope everybody's doing well, staying safe, washing their hands, social distancing, not going too crazy in this very crazy year. And we're going to be doing our third episode in this season of October. Our third episode. And i got to tell you, Midnight Myth listeners, this is a special one. I'm actually a little nervous about it to be perfectly honest. There's, Everybody's
1: nervous their first time doing this one.
0: It it's really a phenomenon. We're not just talking about a movie. We're talking about a movie that created a culture one that exists to this day. We are talking about something that gets celebrated year-round, but does have some great Halloween illusions, some horror movie elements, some sci-fi pulp fiction style elements, but the Quentin Tarantino movie pulp fiction, but like pulp as in oh, yeah, lowbrow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this is a movie that has been in my life for a very long time, and it means a lot to me personally. All that we're gonna get to, this is our science fiction double feature picture show episode about a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania, the Rocky Horror Picture Show.
1: Let's do the time warp again, Derek. Yeah, I am super, super excited to be talking Rocky Horror. Uh, I remember back when uh, we had cable TV and not a bunch of streaming services, and the only time I got to watch this was Halloween night, VH1 would do like a 24-hour marathon of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I would pick it up wherever it was and then watch through to the next one uh, and wait for it to come back on. And uh, it's it's been in my life, just like you said, for a very long time and has meant a bunch of different things to me, and I could not be more excited to do this for our lead-up to Halloween.
0: Yeah, it's like when we do a podcast on like a theme like star Wars or Monty Python. We've done a few of those, these movies that I love so very much that I like, I have to make sure that I am a podcaster and I just don't gush and quote and laugh and joke about how much this movie means to me. I mean, this movie is, it's just, it's just one of a kind there. It is the only thing like it it has; it still has this huge uh, pop subculture attached to it. We're going to get to all of that before we get too heavy into it. Laurel, do your thing.
1: Yeah. Well, we would love to hear from you here at the Midnight Myth Podcast. The best place to uh, interface with us, if you have thoughts, if you have feedback, or you just want to say hi, is Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at the Midnight Myth. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head over to our website for more. We're on midnightmyth.com. You'll find blogs and extra content, a link to our Patreon page and to our merch store there. So those are some ways that you can support us if you have a little bit of extra scratch. Uh, If you don't have that extra money, the best thing you can do for the podcast costs you nothing at all. And that's to leave us a five-star rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really helps us get out there and find new audiences. So we would love to have your support there. And then, uh, you know, this isn't about us. This is about uh, us writ large. If you are a United States citizen, please, please vote uh, next week. Oh my God, it's in like eight days uh, from when this podcast will be published. So please, please, please uh, get out and vote. Vote early if you haven't, or vote in person if you're not high risk. It is a very, very important election. We're not going to tell you who to vote for. You probably know who we're voting for, but uh, the fate of the country hangs in the balance, and we really hope that you will get out and do your civic duty. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and if you know one or two people that you think might be on the fence, or they maybe intend to vote, but you know they're a little flighty and they could forget. Make sure you reach out to those few people you know and encourage, help, do whatever you gotta do to get them to the polls, because it's super important, totally agree. And
1: wear a mask.
0: And wear a mask and be safe. So I guess we're going to do a briefest of brief recaps. Yeah,
1: good luck, Derek.
0: This is truly an unrecapable movie. It must be watched and witnessed and experienced in order to get what this movie actually is, My words will not describe it anywhere close to the full awesome terror might that is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But I'm going to give it the old college try. First, it must be said that Rocky Horror Picture Show is a sci-fi, horror, comedy, rock, opera, musical. It is a genre-mashing movie in which two all-American kids Brad and Janet, fresh off of getting engaged, decide that they must go see their um, once teacher who introduced them, a Professor Emerit Scott, when the car breaks down. The closest building is this scary castle, and they go and they find a party in full swing hosted by the transvestite Dr. Frankenfurter, who is on the cusp of creating human life in a creature named Rocky. Rocky is to be Frankenfurter's personal sexual slave. Uh, Things get wildly out of hand from the beginning. There's the murder of a biker named Eddie. Professor Emerit Scott ends up showing up as he is the uncle of Eddie, looking for his nephew who wrote him a note. And it doesn't take long before the excess, largesse, and sexual exploits of Frankenfurter conquer these two pure all-American kids, Brad and Janet, succumbing to the sexual whims and desires. Things culminate in a bizarre floor show where Frankenfurter's uh, number one henchman, Riff Raff, decides to go rogue, murders Frankenfurter, murders Rocky using a laser gun, learning that frankenfurter riffraff magenta are all aliens from transsexual transylvania having frankenfurter murdered riffraff tells dr scott brad and janet to leave and the castle turns into a gigantic spaceship and it flies away back home to do the time warp once again
1: oh that was excellent i think you did the best you could with something that can only really be experienced By experiencing it. Uh, You know, our friend Andy from Geek Salad Radio said something on Twitter this week, like, there's no way to explain this to someone who hasn't seen it before. And that's absolutely true. Uh, So I appreciate the fact that you tried.
0: (laughs) I've been honest. So I usually have no problem with the recaps. I kind of just bust them out. I've been thinking about this one all week. In fact, since since we decided to do Rocky Horror, I'm like, How am I going to recap this movie?
1: Well, I I salute you.
0: Just a few things to throw in there, because I did make the recap very brief. Um, There's some superstars that got launched out of this movie. Susan Sarandon, for one, who plays Janet, is one of America's greatest uh, living actors. And then none other, the man, the myth, the legend... The
1: great Tim Curry. Tim
0: Curry's career really came out of this, who plays Dr. Frankenfurter. But, I mean, every single performance in this movie is amazing. Meatloaf plays Eddie, which is just hysterical and fantastic. And it is just, it is a sight unto itself.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And uh, Tim Curry also originated the role uh, in its West End performances on stage uh, and then over here in the States as well. So he was absolutely the driving force behind Frankenfurter. He is the only Frankenfurter. And I say this as someone who has seen the stage show a couple of times. So I've seen a few different people try to take on this role. And I think everybody knows that there is no touching the superstar uh, performance of Tim Curry, who is just, I think, one of the greatest treasures that mankind has uh, Tim Curry had a stroke a few years ago and has been wheelchair bound ever since. And so unfortunately we have not been graced with his performances or his presence in a while. Uh, and I just want to say we wish him well and we thank him for the just incredible riches that he has given us as an actor, uh, an incredible person.
0: But I would say no matter where you fall in the appreciation of Tim Curry, you have to admit that Dr. Frankenfurter is outrageous and amazing and raw charisma and bizarre and just everything that is right and wrong in the universe all at once.
1: Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, let's, before we get into analysis, I have, I just have a few questions. One, we do this anytime, especially we rediscover, go back to a movie that we saw when we were young. We have just recently rewatched it in preparation for this podcast I think I know where you're going to stand on this question, but Laurel, do you think this movie holds up?
1: I think it does. I think, you know, I've seen this movie probably in the, it's in the dozens. It's probably in the like 30 to 40 time range. Uh, And so I have it pretty much committed to memory. And yet still it manages to, uh, it manages to leave me totally dumbstruck every time. I'm like, I still can't believe they did that. I still can't believe they did that on screen. Uh, so it holds up in the shock factor. I think it holds up in terms of the music and the performances, that, which you already mentioned, uh, and just the sheer raw vulgarity and joy and uh, and pleasure and strangeness and absurdity of it just never cease to amaze me.
0: Absolutely. Totally agree. You have to keep in mind when watching Rocky Horror Movie, it's supposed to be bad,
1: Oh yeah, it's camp, it's It's
0: supposed to look cheap. It's supposed to be overly melodramatic. It's supposed to be over the top to the ninth degree. And it still maintains a level of serious campness, a level of paradoxical seriousness and silliness all at the same time in a way that no other movie before known to me or after known to me has been able to do and maintain, which is one of the reasons it's still a cult classic to this day. So tell me, we both agree it holds up. Hit me up. How did you come to Rocky Horror Picture Show? Because on the surface, you and I seem more like Brad and Janet's pre-The Car Broken Down <laughs> than we do like Magentas and Riff Raffs.
1: That's really funny because you didn't meet me at the stage in my life that Rocky Horror was most important to me, which was when I was 13, 14, 15, that kind of range, which I still kind of identify as like, that's when I became who I really was. But that was like goth Laurel, um, like high school, uh, super experimental, uh, anti-the-man Laurel. And like I said, I was first introduced to it through those VH1 Halloween marathons, but my core Rocky Horror heart Uh, was really into the midnight showings. And I really think in order to fully experience the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you have to attend one of these midnight screenings. And unfortunately with COVID, I mean, who knows when we'll next be in a movie theater, but what an experience this is. When you go and see a midnight showing of Rocky Horror, this truly is the queen of the cult classics, the midnight movies. Uh, there is a very specific experience that you're signing up for. There is typically a troupe of actors, uh, and there are tons of these in cities across America and across the world, who perform as what are called shadow casts. So what they do is they cast their members, and sometimes they'll rotate out, and they'll basically pantomime the movie in front of the screen, adding extra slapstick elements and extra parody elements and interacting with, characters on screen and then there are a set amount of callback lines that the audience and the cast members shout back at the screen uh also when you go if it's your first time you'll have a ritual (laughs) for the virgins in the audience where they will make you take this oath uh and and i'm sure it's different for every uh every troupe that does it but there are tons of activities and interactive things as part of it you all do the time warp together it's a huge community experience based on audience participation with this movie and i used to go to this every saturday so that's where uh where i really came uh into communion with rocky horror
0: so who introduced you like you were you said you were 13 did you go by yourself
1: i think i started going to those when i was about 15 with my dad <laughs>
0: You had seen the movie before then, though.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely.
0: So your father played you the movie around the age of 13? Is that what happened? Oh,
1: I watched it on TV. I don't know that I watched it with anyone, but uh, but my dad and I went to a lot of midnight movies, and I was like, we have to go to Rocky Horror this Saturday. Let's go to Rocky Horror this Saturday. Let's keep going.
0: Awesome. Can I, I guess I'll tell my story yeah, because please. it's radically different and eerily the same. I've never done a midnight showing of Rocky Horror. It's not something that I've done. I've never had that experience. When I was a boy, my father invested in a thing called a laser disc player. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but these are gigantic CDs the size of records that would play movies. And it was the way to get the best at-home video and sound quality at the time. This is late 80s, early 90s. And my parents used to always throw great parties in the summer where all of my dad's uh, brothers and sisters would come over with their families and we'd all hang out. And just have a blast. It'd be summer. We had a pool. And one year, my uncle came and gave as a host and hostess gift to my mom and dad, the Rocky Horror Picture Show Laserdisc player. And everyone's like, oh, we're watching this tonight. We are absolutely all going to watch this movie. We have it on Laserdisc. I was maybe 10. I could have been younger. I was really, really young. And I was very nervous because... 10-year-old Derek did not like scary movies. And when my dad's like, we're going to watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show, my thought is it's a horror movie. Right. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to watch it. My dad said, nope, you're going to watch this movie. It'll be okay. Trust me. And made me stay up and watch it at the age of being just a child. And it was transformative. The whole family... We ended up buying the CD soundtrack and we would sing Rocky Horror Picture Show. This became a regular ritual at family parties where at the end we'd wind down and we'd play Rocky Horror. And we did this for years. I remember there was, I forget the circumstances, but my uncle who bought the the, the laser disc had to give my mom, my sister, and I a ride somewhere. I think my dad was out of town at work or something like that. And he picked us up and just played the Rocky Horror Picture Show, didn't tell us. And the whole time, we were just singing Rocky Horror Picture Show songs. And so it's been a part of my family, thanks to my absolutely crazy uncle, and then my father insisting that I stay up and watch the movie way too young, way younger than anyone should have. So my sister was probably 11 or 12. I was probably 9 or 10. 11 and 12 is also a little young.
1: A little young.
0: To watch Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it's been in my life for that long.
1: That's amazing. I love that we both came to it young. We both were introduced to it, or at least it was sanctioned by our parents who were like, no, 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 this is a formative and transformative experience that you need to have.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it introduced me to things, ideas, and concepts I have never understood a man wearing woman's clothes. It's the first time I ever saw Same. that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember. It, I remember seeing like Dr. Everett Scott lifting his leg and wearing the fishnets for the first time. I remember seeing that scene very young and being like, "Wow, what a concept!" Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely introduced these ideas um, and and made them feel not so foreign, which I think is a very good thing.
0: And a lot of it went over my head, oh, if I'm course. being honest. It was just wacky and weird and with amazing rock and roll music that once you hear the songs, you can't get them out of your head. Everybody who sees this movie walks out knowing all of the words to the Time Warp and likely Sweet Transvestite and other songs. And yeah, so it's been in my life for this long. Anyway, where would you like to go in terms of analysis? The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a cult classic. People have been revering it. It came out in 1975, and I'd say now here in 2020, people are revering it still. It's now multi-generational in the counter subculture that it's created that keeps this movie relevant. What do you think it's all about, one? And two, why do you think it has been so successful in this sort of sub? Um, counterculture element?
1: I think that's an awesome question. And, you know, when we first decided to do this, it was like, okay, we're going to do Rocky Horror Picture Show and we're going to cover it from the lens of history, mythology, and philosophy. Wait, did we get in over our heads? Is there really anything to talk about here? And I truly think that there is. I think something remarkable is happening in this movie and in the source stage play, The Rocky Horror Show, which debuted in 1973 in the UK. Uh, And that thing that I think is remarkable is the eruption of this community, of this cult, this true cult around it, uh, based in audience participation. One of the things that is most interesting about that audience participation element is that it's key to both the stage show and the movie, but it developed organically in both instances. It's not something that was intended from the get-go. It's not something that the producers said we're gonna encourage this. It's something that audience members reached out and felt that they were compelled to do. They were compelled to participate with Rocky Horror. And I think that's worth tons of uh, exploration. Why we have that urge? Why this particular piece of art makes us wanna reach out and communicate with the actors on stage or on screen. So to investigate that, I think one of the things that we have to do is look back at theater history and the history of audience participation, where that really comes from. And when you think about theater, uh, it really has always been and still is in every case, a participatory act. You're in a room with the people performing the piece, so you're breathing the same air, you're all there, you're reacting in real time, you're sharing the same space, and actors can feed off of the audience's energy because you're all there in the same room. But back to theater's origins in ancient Greece, it was a religious festival. It was a days-long experience that was a participatory ritual honoring your gods, particularly honoring the god Dionysus, the god of transformation and wine and revelry. Uh, So there's always been an element of this being a communal experience as part of theater. But when we think about audience participation today and like the true encouragement of communication across the proscenium arch, we're looking back primarily to uh, a theatrical tradition known as English pantomime that really sets the stage for what that becomes. English pantomime, or panto as it's sometimes shortened to, is, uh, it draws on the medieval Mummers plays, mystery plays and pageant wagons of the Middle Ages in England, but also on an Italian Renaissance art form known as Commedia dell'arte. Now we talked about Commedia pretty extensively on our podcast on the Sopranos, so I'd recommend if you want a little more background on Commedia, check out that episode. I think it's 60-something a few uh, years ago. But for our purposes tonight, the only thing you really need to know about Commedia is that it's marked by the use of stock characters and scenarios. The stock characters are all distinguished easily by their costumes and their masks. And there's typically a pair of young lovers known as the Inamorati. There's usually some old men, the vecchi, And then there's a bevy of comic servants known as the Zani, uh, usually there's the uh, the Harlequin character, Arlecchino is one of those. There might be a Pulcinella character, and there might be a Columbina character, a couple of other names. But there's usually a handful of servants who do these comedic routines, doing improvised scenarios based on a repertoire of comedic gags. So it's kind of the inception of vulgar jokes in theater history as well, because they start doing... Things like pies in the face and poop humor and all kinds of vulgarity and slapstick. It's really where slapstick comes from. So this tradition of Commedia dell'arte catches on in England, where it's adapted eventually into the pantomime, which hits its peak around the 18th and 19th century especially. And Panto develops its own set of really specific conventions So Panto is typically gonna be adopting fairy tales or other familiar folk material. So it'll usually mash up several recognizable stories and parody them while incorporating stock characters and scenarios from Commedia. So some typical Pantos you might see are like Sleeping Beauty but with elements of Cinderella and with the Commedia characters built in and a whole bunch of other uh, Panto stereotypes. Or you might see one based on Aladdin. Uh, Now, if we think about this in the context of Rocky Horror, what is Rocky Horror doing but mashing up and sending up the B sci-fi and horror movies a la Frankenstein and King Kong and Forbidden Planet, taking this familiar source material and feeding it back through this lens of parody with a whole bunch of stock comedic characters. Uh, Panto is also marked by comedy and music. It's typically a musical, Featuring extreme camp, extreme levels of camp. I don't know where else we've seen a comedic musical with extreme levels of camp. Uh, Then Panto is loaded with sexual innuendo, check mark there. Uh, And then we'll have the same kind of stock characters influenced by commedia. We'll have the young lovers, Brad and Janet. We'll have a bevy of servants like Riffraff, Columbia, and Magenta, and then Commedia, uh, or sorry, Panto. Adds its own very specific, uh, stereotypical, archetypical character known as the dame. Every panto you'll go and see, and they're still performed to this day, especially as a Christmas tradition, will feature a dame, always played by a man in drag. And this is usually a larger-than-life character, sometimes morally ambiguous, but always incredibly funny. You love seeing them come on stage. They have a bunch of big numbers. Where have we seen a character like that except in Frankenfurter? We take the mad scientist archetype and we dress him up as a Panto dame. He gets the 11 o'clock number. He gets all the attention. He gets tons of slapstick scenes and pulls all the focus from everyone else, uh, but is doing so through this larger-than-life lens. And then lastly, Panto is marked by tons and tons of audience participation, which is where we started. There is traditional call and response. The audience will be expected to hiss and boo when the villain comes on screen, or they'll cheer for the heroes, or if a ghost is sneaking up on you, the audience is supposed to shout, it's right behind you. They're encouraged to participate. Uh, They're encouraged to interact with the performers, and they're encouraged to sing along with the songs. Almost every panto is going to have at least one song that is marked for sing-along that teaches the audience to sing along with it. Just like the time warp teaches you to sing and dance along with the time warp. So while Rocky Horror may not have been conceived as a traditional panto, we can clearly see so many of the archetypes and the conventions of panto that are part of it, that it's almost impossible to resist the temptation to interact with it. We can see how uh, the the original Rocky Horror Show would have tempted audience members to get on their feet and do the time warp. How could you possibly resist? Uh, there's a funny story. In fact, Angie Bowie, who was at that point married to the great David Bowie, believes she was the first person to introduce audience participation to the stage play with the Rocky Horror Show. She shouted something like, don't go down there or it's right behind you at the stage and then encouraged a bunch of other people to do the same. But this developed organically in the show and within a few performances, people were starting to come back. People were coming back for repeat viewings, singing along, dressing up, trying to be part of the action until the producers caught on and were like, "Uh, we should ride this wave and started passing out printed flyers that had directions on how to do the time warp. And this naturally happened for the movie as well, which had a cinematic run that was pretty disappointing. Uh, it didn't really catch on at first, but people who had seen the show and who loved it started playing it at midnight and acting troops got together. There was a troupe in LA called the Rocky Horror Review that were like, let's play this at midnight. We'll all dress up and dance. We'll shout some stuff at the screen and we'll see if it takes off. And it did. So the same thing that happened, uh, to the show on stage that people wanted to participate, people wanted to interact. Even happened in the cinema, which I think is a really unique and remarkable thing and has set off an incredible legacy because usually seeing something on screen, you feel so distant from it. You don't feel like you're having a theatrical experience. But Rocky Horror Picture Show reaches out to you, calls out to you, and pulls you all the way in. I love it.
0: And you think, if I understand your argument correctly, and I believe I do, you think that this is structural. The reason this has happened is that there is a structure that invites the audience in that says it's okay to yell at the screen, to sing along, that makes it easy to understand the words, that makes it easy to understand the mechanics of the movie. This is where the bad guy will be. This is where the good guy should get to. That invites the audience. So in other words part of the the secret sauce is taking this English pantomime structure, putting it into a contemporary rock opera, for lack of a better term, and one that satirizes and celebrates all at the same time. And that structure then means that it's somewhat inevitable that an organic audience culture would come around it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. And I think you've summed it up really nicely. I do think that structure is the thing that invites you in, but of course content is deeply important because this movie wouldn't resonate with us if it was just a panto about anything. This movie resonates with us for so many reasons and a lot of them have to do with creating an inclusive audience culture. uh, And that's one thing that's really special about going to a midnight screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show is you will feel welcome. Uh, You will feel like no matter what kind of weird you are, You are someone who belongs there, and it's a place for
0: weirdos. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. You mentioned something at the beginning of your point about Greek theater as a religious ritual for Dionysus. And this is very true. The tradition of Greek theater came out of festivals for Dionysus, and people would act to transform, to become something else, to become something a little more Dionysian in spirit. And Dionysus is known as a god not only of pleasure and wine and revelry, but also primarily to transform oneself, to become something different than what you originally were. That's the magic which feeds the Dionysian pageants. And the theaters were pageants to Dionysus. Those that then, as this tradition in ancient Greece became more and more prevalent, more and popular, theater became something that uh, became more regular, became more structured. There became professional actors, people whose job it was to transform in the Dionysian Festival. It's important to note, if you've ever seen True Blood, there was another major Dionysian festival, the Festival of the Maenads, where women would transform into Dionysian Maenads. but that's just a little side tangent. Just wanted to recognize True Blood for getting something right. <laughs> Absolutely. The professional acting class in the ancient world were considered to be the lowest of the low in social hierarchy. They were the misfits. They were the ones who had to work when others had to relax. They were the servants of the mime. They were the people who were considered to be wretched because they didn't farm, they didn't fight, they didn't do any of these standard things that are considered virtuous, but they just participated in these Dionysian theaters and then into professional theaters and this is a tradition that continued well into the middle ages where to be the lowest person in society would to be a performer someone engaged in the performing arts it was then and is now a place for those who are a little bit different if you are uh, ancient athenian and philosophy and learning how to be a great naval warrior are not something that you're you're really into, and you don't enjoy farming, you don't have a lot of other options because there's not a lot of other things that you can do, but then you can go into the theater and you can be theatrical and you can dress like a woman and you can guzzle wine and act like a fool or you can become Oedipus Rex and be a king who gouges out his own eyes, And to date, I think part of the reason Rocky Horror Picture Show has this this culture around it, it's because it creates and did create a haven for those who didn't have other avenues where they could belong in. Now, 2020 America is very different than 1975 America. And if you're a man who likes to wear women's clothes, it's not as frowned upon as it was then, not saying it's like accepted whole cloth. But there are more places now.
1: Yeah, there's a shifting landscape when it comes to gender roles and conventions.
0: If you find yourself weird and unusual and don't know where you fit, there's more accepting spaces now than there were then, we could argue. And Rocky Horror Picture Show is part of the transitional cultural period that sort of broke down traditional, quote-unquote, conservative American values made them a little more outrageous and we see this in the characters brad and janet who are straight laced who are doing everything right they got a job they dated they haven't had sex they're getting married
1: yeah they're saving themselves
0: they're gonna go see their teacher who introduced them they're two virtuous all-american kids right and they get encountered for the first time into this weird world of sexual awakening and pleasure, a world where things are outrageous and fabulous and bizarre and bloody, and they can't get enough of it. And much like the time, that period, the 70s is a transitional period. The 60s had the sexual and rock and roll revolution, and the 70s kind of echoed into that And Rocky Horror was a place where people could go and be themselves in a world that did not allow them to be themselves. And it makes sense that there's that one part, the structure, the pantomime structure, then the second is the inclusive culture which it fostered, which helped create this pop culture phenomenon.
1: Yeah, I wanna go back to something you were saying about Dionysus and theater and transformation too, because what is the, like, key climactic moment where things really change for our protagonists, for Brad and Janet. It's the floor show. It is, uh, you know, after they have, have tried to reject everything that Frank has thrown at them, he suddenly uses the Medusa transducer, turns them to stone, dolls them up, puts them in corsets and fishnets and feather boas and puts them on stage. And under the stage lights, they start to confess that they have been awakened, that something new has come over them. Janet says, my mind has been expanded. Brad says, I feel sexy. I want this to happen again and again. There is something that happens to them, some transformative thing that happens to them once they have encountered this Dionysian man in Frank. Uh, So there is absolutely this element of uh, the transformation of performance, whether that is literal performance on a stage, wearing costumes and the floor show, or that is the letting down of your your particular performance of gender, or your embracing of a different kind of performance of gender and sexuality.
0: Interesting thoughts there. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, but you know, it's interesting to think where does the movie really land on Frankenfurter. Because Dr. Frankenfurter is very much the bad guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's an incredibly uh, ambiguous figure, but he's wicked, he's cruel, he has no uh, regard for consent. He, you know, creates a... a perfect being just to be his love slave after throwing away two other people who loved him at some point. So yeah, he's not a good person.
0: (laughs) Brutally murders Eddie with a pickaxe in front of dozens of witnesses.
1: Right, of course. Then gets the body
0: chopped up and fed to Eddie's ex-lover, Columbia. That's
1: a rather tender subject.
0: Yeah, literally cuts up Eddie and feeds Eddie to the, the party, which is just barbaric. And I think there is a there's some layers in which to understand Frankenfurter and what this movie is in particular saying about counterculture, gender, and writ large, I think, morality. And I do think there are some interesting meditations that we can take away. One of the like easiest interpretations when, I, when you first watch this is like, Frankenfurter's a hedonist. Right, yeah. It's all about pleasure.
1: Absolute pleasure.
0: Doing what you want. And avoiding pain, anyone or anything that causes you pain, you purge out of your life. And you know researching hedonistic philosophy in preparation to have a discussion on it, you realize that like Frankenfurter is not a philosophical hedonist. Frankenfurter would be potentially a psychological hedonist, but even then, the distinctions are are not fair to hedonists. Yeah. Because as you learned, hedonism started in ancient Greece with a guy named Epicurus. And Epicurus looked around at everyone discussing philosophy, what is right and wrong, and realized that the real question is like, how should we how should we humans be happy? How can we be happy? Versus what are the virtues that we need in order to live a morally correct life? Or how do we spiritually purify ourselves? Or... How do we become the best civic uh, members of society? Epicurus was just like, well, what does any of that matter if we're all miserable all the time? And was interested in human happiness. And Epicurus came up with the groundwork which became hedonism that says it's pretty simple. You maximize pleasure and you avoid pain. But Epicurus wasn't in favor of just crazy orgies where you were just chasing an orgasm and alcoholism and drugs the entire time. He wasn't arguing for an Eddie or a Dr. Frankenfurter. No, Epicurus was arguing for finding a harmonious balance to minimize pain, maximize pleasure. What are the ways in which humans can do that, but living within a more balanced and whole life and in many ways found that limiting your desires is the best way to maximize your pleasure because desire causes suffering, something that would be echoed a few millennium later in a completely different part of the world in the religion of Buddhism and the idea that you must purge your desires because desires cause suffering, desires cause pain. In And then in the more modern context, there were several hedonistic philosophers such as John Stuart Mills, who came up with utilitarianism, which is a philosophy of morality that says maximize the amount of pleasure and minimize the amount of pain. So philosophically, hedonism is not about orgies and parties and creating sex slaves. And you know, if someone gets someone annoys you because they might be flirting with your sex slave, you murder them with a pickaxe, If two innocent kids need a telephone, you imprison them and corrupt them sexually and then turn them into stone and make them dance and do songs to make yourself feel happy. I mean, Frankenfurter looks at the camera and says, it's not easy having a good time.
1: Even smiling makes my face ache.
0: In very melodramatic line and very much breaking down the fourth wall, looking at us, but is saying like, even this life of extreme pleasure causes unhappiness and pain so in this respect frankenfurter is not a philosophical hedonist because it's way more complicated and colloquially frankenfurter is a hedonist the way we understand hedonism as just you know largest orgies parties but philosophically not then there's the psychological hedonism that says that we are motivated by seeking pleasure and minimizing pain and this is a psychological theory. And this theory is pretty intuitive. Imagine you're listening to a podcast and the podcast has two hosts, one who is lovely and beautiful and articulate and intelligent and one whose voice is a little raspy, who drones on and doesn't make a lot of sense and makes a lot of mental errors and sometimes sounds like a total buffoon. When you are listening to the podcast, you'll be more motivated to listen to the beautiful, intelligent, and articulate member. It will cause you pleasure So you'll want to listen more. And then when the other podcast host starts drowning on, you're like, oh, it's time to turn this off. It causes displeasure. So you are less motivated when the more painful podcast host speaks versus the more articulate and intelligent podcast host speaks.
1: It's a terrible analogy. It's terrible. it it,
0: It makes total sense. If one causes you more pleasure, you're more likely to listen. When one causes you pain, you're less likely to Listen, listen. And if you think of how we have created digital algorithms based upon likes, shares, and dislikes, this is all about digitizing psychological hedonism by saying people are more likely when they share something to gain more attraction, so they're more motivated by it. And there's a lot of schadenfreude in that. Schadenfreude. Thank you. Which is enjoying other misery, so... Looking at someone fail, looking at someone do terrible is something that we innately find pleasure in and share. If you want to think of an example of this, just Google Mike Pence and a fly. And from the vice presidential (laughs) debate, which is all about just getting such pleasure over the fact that a fly landed on this dude's head. But the problem is with psychological hedonism is one, in understanding Rocky Horror, it doesn't really track because... Frankenfurter is pursuing the good time, stating that it's not easy and causes Frankenfurter pain. Moreover, Frankenfurter's lifestyle excess, as sung by riffraff, "Your mission is a failure, your lifestyle's too extreme," directly causes Frankenfurter to get murdered. And then secondly, in the last number that Frankenfurter sings, "I'm going home," admits that, like, yeah, I'm not really happy here anyway. This, I've been miserable this whole time running amok on planet Earth, just chasing all of my whims and desires.
1: He says something about how he deals cards for pleasure, cards for pain. Uh, and so there's this uh, sense that he can acknowledge that there is a balance between those two and that it has been largely random. His pursuit of absolute pleasure has been largely random and has not been entirely fulfilling.
0: So I'd like to offer an analysis that I think can help explain frankenfurter why frankenfurter is the bad guy or bad girl or bad non-binary in this scenario why um you know who Riff Raff and magenta what they represent and brad and janet and dr scott and i think it, it starts with understanding that a lot of this movie is coupled in threes there are three heroes that live at the end there are three servants Brad Janet and Dr. Uh, Brad Janet and Frankenfurter become a sort of trio.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of love triangle, a lot of different love triangles within it.
0: And I think we have to understand Frankenfurter's desire for pleasure is not necessarily about hedonism, but it's about raw ego in the Freudian sense.
1: Pleasure principle all the way.
0: It is about I exist, I am here, and I want what I want, and I'm going to get it. If Frankenfurter were a, a Freudian analysis between the id ego and superego, just to recap the id, your subconscious desires and um, thoughts and feelings, ego yourself, your conscious self, then superego, the moralism. Frankenfurter has no superego and that lack of a superego telling Frankenfurter that there is right and wrong has allowed Frankenfurter to repress their ego, their id pardon me so deep down that it manifests itself in unnatural and psychologically unhealthy ways. Evidence one, I can create life. I can create life. I am a god, but I do it simply to fulfill uh, sexual pleasure. I can attract immense loyalty out of my servants, but I abuse and berate and humiliate them. I can travel through space and time itself and I do it to find a bunch of inferior technological beings that I can play with and toy with at my own whims and desires. Frankenfurter is the manifestation of just pure ego, pure self. It is about me and only about me. And even if my desires cause me pain, I will pursue them unto my own death and the failure of a mission, which Riff Raff mentions that they were sent there for a reason. We have no idea what it is but it failed because of frankenfurter's egoistic lifestyle then we have brad and janet who start off the movie all super ego all moralism all right and wrong all in performances of what they should be no self-desires whatsoever well that isn't too isn't fair they desire the ring they desire the trip to go see Dr. Scott, but these are all baked into normative behaviors taught to them through a paternalistic superego. So they do have desires, but their superego is so powerful, they're not allowed to even consult or touch or unleash any part of their id. So when Frankenfurter touches their id, which is to say when Frankenfurter seduces them both, even though they witness Frankenfurter murder someone, they can't help but go deeper into there is. They can't help, but now that it's unleashed to go to the floor show and join Frankenfurter in orgiastic display of pleasure because they have denied themselves this for such a long time.
1: Wow, I would say drop the mic, but they're on stands. You know you you sparked something in my mind, this uh, Brad and Janet being all super ego being uh, basically just copies, carbon copies of a system that they've been fed. Where do we first encounter them? At a wedding of two of their good friends, and then they immediately uh, ape exactly what their friends just did. So their friends just got married, Janet catches the bouquet, so they do the exact same thing. They perform the proposal, and then they immediately compare themselves to their friends. The ring is nicer than Betty Monroe had, uh, and they, they do exactly what was modeled for them and what has been modeled for them by generation after generation, not doing anything based on their own individual desires, but the desires of the community that have been passed down to them.
0: And then lastly, I'd like to touch on uh, the last part of the threes the characters that represent the raw id, the incestuous riffraff and magenta, the brother sister that are in a romantic relationship that have been nothing but repressed and oppressed by Frankenfurter, the ego. They are looked down upon and judged as Wretched Creatures by Brad and Janet, the super ego, and they linger in the background with their pleasures only to, they can't totally suppress your id because at the end it will pop up in unexpected ways and it will take control just as Magenta and Riff Raff do and they end up killing the ego in Frankenfurter and Frankenfurter's creation, Rocky.
1: Oh, that's really good. And if you think back to their role in the Time Warp number, one of the first things that Riff Raff says is, I've got to keep control, and then he kind of lets loose. And Magenta is like, fantasy, free me. And she talks about being uh, this creature of the void who just watches things from this repressed place, well-secluded, I see all. I think you're total- your your theory here is totally held up by the text.
0: And I think this is why Frankenfurter is, the-, is the-, the villain in this, is that because of all of these things that are out of whack psychically, that this raw ego ends up trying to dominate, control, and kill or corrupt everything that Frankenfurter touches. And that's the reason Frankenfurter, as fabulous and charismatic and as ingenious as Frankenfurter is, is the bad guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an incredible argument that you've made. And of course there is tons of ambiguity in how Frankenfurter is received, uh, by the audience and by the characters, because we have to acknowledge that like something was freed by Frankenfurter's interference. Even though it was a very uh, traumatic experience, I think for Brad and Janet, they do leave this as different people. And uh, you know, in some versions of the film, the the final number is cut. The final number is a little unsettling. Uh, as Brad and Janet sort of crawl around in the wreckage with Dr. Scott of the spaceship house and say, you know, deep inside, I'm bleeding. But just moments before, they were wrapped up in ecstasy they had never felt in their lives. And they had said things like, it's a gas, my mind has been expanded. So I think we have to acknowledge, too, that there is this Dionysian aspect to Frank, that he is kind of this... Ambiguous, godlike figure who touches their lives and will leave them totally different. They will never be the same people again.
0: I totally agree. I'll give you the uh, the lines to the the cut number that I think are instructive. I won't sing them, but it starts with Brad saying, I've done a lot. God knows I've tried to find the truth. I've even lied. And all I know is down inside, I'm bleeding. Then it goes to to Janet, who says, and superheroes, they come to feast to taste the flesh, not yet deceased. And all I know is that the beast keeps feeding. Then there's a bunch of musical parts, and then it goes to the criminologist. The the narrator, yeah. Who says, and crawling on the planet's face, some insects called the human race, lost in time,
1: lost lost in space.
0: space, and meaning. And at the end of this movie, especially when you take that whole song, that whole poem, it really does come down to one thing: you're all a bunch of meaningless wretches. your trials and tribulations, your ecstasies, your parties, and your hangovers they come down to you being an insect, and this meant nothing
1: yeah and and riffraff and magenta take off and go to this technologically superior galaxy that they're from, leaving everybody in the dust, leaving everybody behind, and looking back on the Earth. We're looking back on the Earth in the final shot as this illuminated globe, uh, just as the plaything of these higher beings.
0: And in that, we do get a sense of old mythological gods. The criminologist seems like he is someone that's not on Earth. To recounting this tragic tale and then the last word of the free-floating mouth is darkness has conquered brad and janet brad and janet and this is very much about these two all-american kids succumbing to a level of darkness that i think isn't because they have unlearned gender and I think that's the wrong lead, That, that yeah, yeah. the wrong read, part of me. It's not that they've unlearned gender and that they first learned what an orgasm is and they first learned that it's okay to be a man and feel sexy.
1: Because those are all very good things. That's
0: all of these things are totally okay. But it's because they have lied and cheated. The two people that were supposed to stick together to get through this were Brad and Janet and they turned on each other on a dime Because they were, they their entire, um, their entire moral reason for existing, the entire like pro America conservative mentality that you follow the rules, you work hard, you be all American, you're thin, you're pretty, you're white, you're you're well educated, and you're a virgin when you get married is a lie, is just a full out deconstructing lie. And once their super egos have been shattered and they have let their ids go completely free, the ids consume them and there's nothing left.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, that gets me.
0: (laughs) What else you got?
1: Uh, This has been an unexpectedly fruitful discussion. I think we uh, have both surprised ourselves with what we were able to dig up with regard to uh, the riches of Rocky Horror. Um, I've had an incredible time and watching this movie again and reflecting on what it was like to go to midnight showings and to be part of a community of really weird, eccentric people who love this movie what it really got me thinking was, uh, you know, there. I do feel a palpable sense of loss for uh, the performing arts right now, um, and for the the communal experience of the arts in general. Whether that's going and seeing a play, going to a museum, going to a concert, or even going and seeing a movie, uh, those are things that I hope do come back soon in some form, in some safe form. And I hope that we you know, weather this storm and come out the other side stronger uh, because I do think it is an ancient urge to gather with other people and to celebrate uh, the absolutely strange and inconsequential and substantial and profound experience that is life on this planet. I think we have to do it together. I think we have to reach out and touch a touch a touch each other once it's safe again. Um, and I think that theater and performance and art really reach out and and touch us in that way and allow us to communicate uh, through through different languages, allow us to communicate through communal languages that we can all share and do the time warp again. So hopefully we'll all be in a room doing this ancient ritual again soon.
0: I'm thinking about, A line from one of my favorite Jimi Hendrix songs, and it's really, really short. It goes almost cut my hair just the other day, but I decided to let my freak flag fly. And until next time, be Be kind. kind.